Amen. If you're able, let's remain standing to honor God's word. It comes to us from Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 30. He also said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, good morning and welcome to worship, and we're glad that you're here. We're glad uh, that so many of you are with us online. Uh, we welcome you. You probably can't hear this online, but inside we heard, and as we gathered here, there's the sound of construction going on outside, and the Bible says make a joyful noise to the Lord, and I'm hearing that as a joyful thing, right? Um, I'm, I'm like a teenager on that long drive. I'm driving Drew crazy because every week I'm asking him, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Uh, soon. He keeps saying soon. So, <laughs> But I hear it as a joyful, joyful noise. Hey, uh, we're continuing a series of sermons on uh, the parables. We started three weeks ago and a couple weeks ago. And uh, the title of this series is Tell It Slant, which comes from a Dickinson poem. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. And Jesus told stories to convey truth. And today we're looking at the uh, parable of the mustard seed. So this is the third week in a row now we've had parables about Jesus' kingdom where he talks about seeds. Hear these words from, this is from the poet Wendell Berry. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his, his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light for a time. I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Let us pray. Lord, these uh, words are yours. They're eternal and they do not change. We pray now that your spirit would teach us, be our teacher, uh, that we might hear your word, the word that you want us to hear this day. Amen. David Brooks wrote uh, an essay this past week in The Atlantic that I found incredibly helpful. And he writes this. He says, over the last eight years or so, I've been obsessed with two questions. The first is, why have Americans become so sad? Why have Americans become so sad? Now, this is just not a feeling. This is not just an, an observation of one. Statistics are backing this up in a very shocking way. Um, and he points some of these out, very, very troubling. The rising rates of depression have been are well publicized. The rising of, of deaths, of despair from drugs, alcohol, suicide, all skyrocketing. But other statistics are similarly troubling. 
percentage of people who say they don't have close friends has increased um, fourfold since 1990. Fourfold. The share of Americans ages 25 to 54 who weren't married or living with a romantic partner went up to 38% in 2019 from 29% in 1990. A record high 25% of 40-year-old Americans have never married. More than half of all Americans say that no one knows them well. Did you hear that? Half of Americans say that no one knows them well. And then he says, my second related question is this. Why have Americans become so mean? We ask these same questions, do we not? They are big questions, and we feel them, and we're asking them as well. What is going on? And these are really important questions to ask. And a lot of people are asking these questions, and they're trying to figure this out. Why are all these things statistically going up so fast in our country, in America? And he points out that there are several factors, and Several sociologists, people studying this, have come up with several reasons why, um, but they're all limited. For example, he talks about, some people say, you know, you can connect this to the rise of social media, right? Social media has really done this and has hurt us really badly, and there may be some truth in that, but here's a problem is other parts of the world have social media, and they're not facing the same crisis we are, so you can't just label it there. What David Brooks says is the problem is in our country, in our context, many years ago, we stopped teaching morality. Moral values, moral virtues, we stopped. Many years ago, colleges, when you went away to college, they, part of the training was moral virtues. They would teach things like humility. Churches, community organizations, families, communities, neighborhoods, all were reinforcing this to everybody. Moral values, moral principles. And Brooks says, we, had a, we used to have a focus on others or helping. And now we are consumed, when you take that away, consumed with self. And it's having tragic consequences. And I think he's right. But I also think we have to take it maybe one step back, one step back and ask some questions to see how do we get there. I mean, it's not just a matter of, okay, now everybody now have moral virtues. You can't just yell at everybody and say, now you just do them. We need to step back, I think, a little bit and ask the question, where, does this, where do they come from? How do we, in the church, talk about them? Jesus said, how can we picture God's kingdom? He's been talking about the kingdom and describing an alternative kingdom that is here and is available to all of us. So he says, what kind of story can we use? He says, my kingdom is like a mustard seed. Now, this is the tiniest seed, hardly visible. It was the smallest known seed in that day. So Jesus is using this on purpose. My kingdom is like a tiny, tiny seed, which planted... When it lands on the ground, it's quite small. And yet once it is planted, it grows into a huge tree with thick branches. Birds nest in it. He says, that's what my kingdom is like. 
Now, Jesus was speaking in parables and doing miracles. and He had a band of followers, and he was going around the countryside. But think about it. In the scope of context, his teaching was tiny compared to what was going on around. Think about the influence of Plato and Aristotle and the Greek philosophers. Think about the political uh, might and power of the Roman Empire. Big, massive schools of thought and pressure and violence and movement of kingdoms. And here is this one who's going around and telling stories, telling parables, and people are listening to him. It's quite small, kind of like a mustard seed. And yet, that one person, from that one seed, a great tree, a great kingdom has formed. How unlikely. The kingdom of God is like the greatest of trees, which started from the tiniest of seeds. And in that tree, the birds of the air can nest. And Jesus said, this is what my kingdom is like. Now, we don't know exactly um, how Jesus' hearers would have heard this, but they, they had a grasp of the Old Testament. They had a, an understanding of, uh, of the prophets, a lot of them, Dim, and, and what they talked about. And when Jesus talks about a great tree, many of the hearers would have heard and hearkened back to what the prophet Daniel or Ezekiel had talked about. He was saying that he's come to bring the great world tree of the prophets of old, um, the spine of the universe, the axis mundi, we might say. This is what it says in Daniel chapter 4, where there's this vision. I saw a big towering tree at the center of the world. As I watched, the tree grew huge and strong. Its top reached the sky, and it could be seen from the four corners of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant. Enough food for everyone. Wild animals found shelter under it. Birds nested in its branches. Everything living was fed and sheltered by it. This is a vision that Daniel had. Ezekiel had a similar vision. These prophets are looking forward. And by the way, they're living in a world full of chaos. With a lot of lonely people. A lot of depressed people. A lot of angry people. And then this vision comes. I'm looking in the future. I see a great tree. A great tree. And birds are in there, and it's leaves, and there's peace. This vision was about Jesus. He was the tiny mustard seed. When a seed is put into the ground, it dies, but then something grows, and Jesus died and was put into the earth. He was put into the earth, and he was raised, and then a great tree formed, a great kingdom that connected heaven and earth. It was a vision that Daniel and Ezekiel, they had, and they said, they looked forward, they said, someday there's going to be this great world tree that's going to be amazing. And thus, Jesus becomes the one central organizing principle of our world. Why are people so unhappy? Why are so many people angry? I don't think, I think it's because they don't know the shade of this tree. They don't know it. But this kingdom of Jesus is very different than our kingdoms. The kingdoms of this world. It's, it's vastly different. Vastly different. 
um, there is joy in this kingdom. But if we're not under the shade of the Jesus tree, the great tree, the great kingdom, our lives are going to be disjointed, angry, cut off, like a, a fish in a puddle of water. It kind of feels like this is the right place to be, but it's gasping for air and it's flopping around. That's kind of where we live right now. There are a number of very popular kingdoms in our world that we can subscribe to. And they, we may feel like they may be right. I mean, our feelings may say, hey, this is the right kingdom to be a part. But they miss the mark, and it's causing great consequence in our world. For example, let me, let me talk about three this morning. The first is what we might call the kingdom of my comfort. In this kingdom, our organizing principle is, I am on this earth to be comfortable and happy. And I, I expect if I go to church and if I go to Bible study and if I do these things, I kind of expect that God's going to do everything he can to make me comfortable and happy, right? Show of hands, how many of you prayed for a close parking spot this morning on their way to church? No, you didn't. No one here. No one would do that. No, I've never done that ever. No, we would never do that. Um, no, we expect God. That if God is good and he's loving, then he must, he must want us to be comfortable all the time. Right? I, you know, I, I think this. Sometimes I, I fall into this. Like, why, Lord, I'd be so much more comfortable if, if my baseball team, the Padres, would win more games. And they're not. They're losing to the Titans. <coughs> why, Lord? Why, Lord? Why? Psychologist Kim Hill Hall laments. She says, people walk into my office and they say that they're Christians, but I see no difference except that they want to be happy and they expect God to make them so. Now, you see the organizing principle. What, what, what am I wrapping my life around? Everything about my life is striving to fulfill my needs, that I be comfortable. I demand it. I go to great lengths to make sure that happens. And I'll, I'll, I'll work here and I'll do this and I'll do this. And then I'll call on God and expect God to make that happen. But when we do that, we are trivializing God. And in many ways, we may be misapplying Scripture to get to that point. The Bible does teach that God is love. And so then we might just assume that a loving God would want to deliver us from all discomfort. But the highest form of love sometimes wills the suffering of the beloved if suffering is what the beloved needs. The Bible makes it very clear that God's love can bring pain into our lives as well as joy into our lives. The writer to, Heb to the Hebrews said this, while we were children, our parents did what seemed best to them, but God is doing what is best for us, training us to live God's holy best. At the time, discipline isn't much fun. It always feels like it's going against the grain. Later, of course, it pays off handsomely, for it's the well-trained who find themselves mature in their relationship with God. That's a vastly different thing. If I'm in God's kingdom, if I'm resting under his tree, there's going to be seasons where he's going to say, we're going to go through this. And I need to take you through this, this valley or this trough. You might not like it. It may not be comfortable. But this is what God says we're going to do. Do you remember what we prayed earlier? Remember we prayed together. Your kingdom come. 
your will be done. Do we feel the weight of that? We say it pretty quickly every Sunday morning, but we are saying it. Lord, I want your will to be done in my life. We are handing over. We are giving up. You see, to enter into God's kingdom is to lose oneself. That's where I'd say to David Brooks in his essay, the way to us to get out of unhappiness, the way to us to get away from anger, we're going to have to lose ourselves. We come to God's kingdom. We say, Lord, I'm giving up all that. I'm letting go. I'm going to trust you for my life. I'm going to trust you for my future, wherever that may go. And by the way, when Jesus said, come follow me to his early disciples, it wasn't the most comfortable life all the time, right? It was good. It was right. They found joy and they found peace. But it wasn't always comfortable the way we define comfort. Divinest comfort is what Franny Crosby's taught us to say. Divinest comfort. It's a very different thing than my comfort. The second we might call the kingdom of my success. This is a close relative, and it's one that's uh, of the kingdom of my comfort. This one is very, very popular in our North America, um, the kingdom of my success. And the drive for success is relentless. It's, it's ingrained into us from an early age. But we, what happens is we get trapped on this treadmill of self-destruction, and we don't even know what's happening. But the organizing principle in this kingdom is you must be seen as successful. I must be seen as successful. And so to get that, we run faster and faster. And then an inner voice whispers to us that we're really not getting anywhere. You better run harder. And let's be honest, it's not easy living the American dream. We could use some help. So we call on God. We say, God, could you help make me a success? Um, we read books that say if you pray in the right way or with the right formula or with the right frequency, God's going to expand your territory and bring you success. <sighs> that God is there to kind of give you what you want. It doesn't work that way. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking. Jesus says, you have not because you ask not. But the problem is, is when we're focusing on my success, we're, we're, we're viewing God in a very childlike way. Um, and by the way, how do you measure success? I mean, it's measured by the applause you get, by the people around you saying, you're really successful, by the people who are looking up to you and saying, well done, you're amazing. You must have a great work ethic. You must be working very, very hard. And, and so that applause becomes something that we actually need. It becomes something that we, in turn, start to demand. And when it starts to stop, we work even harder. Does this sound like comfort? Does it sound like rest? Does it sound peaceful at all? It's not. And we get angry. We actually also get lonely. We must also work harder. We're, we're so afraid that the applause may waver. We need to be lifted higher than this. We need to be raised above petty desires for money, power, social status. And we trivialize God when we do this. And, he and what happens is it sponsors the most trivial forms of success. In God's kingdom, and by the way, 
I've mentioned this, but I'm going to say it again. The entry into God's kingdom is to lose oneself, to let go of one's desires, to say, Lord, I trust you. We take our sword and we, we point it towards ourselves. We lay it down. We say, God, I'm giving you authority. I'm, I'm going to be, I want to be in your kingdom. I'm, I'm ready to let you just dictate and decide. And if that means letting go of success, if that means letting go of comfort, then I will do that. I'm going to journey with you. I'm going to see where you lead me. In that kingdom, you are not defined by your work. Isn't that wonderful? In that kingdom, you are not defined by what you've done or what you've accomplished. In that kingdom, we are defined by the work of Christ. His work is what defines us. When we know that and live that, boy, that's a peace. That's a joy. It's not up to me, it's up to him. Third, the other nation uh, kingdom that is uh, very popular in our, our context is the kingdom of my nation. We enter into Jesus' kingdom. We are giving him allegiance. He's the king. Um, him and him alone. And we become preoccupied with his kingdom values morality. So this is where we begin to learn what it is to mean to be a citizen under his kingdom. Now, sometimes, you know, part of the trouble with these three is that in each of these, there are some overlap. And so it's tricky because... God does want us to have some measure of comfort, right? Because he asks us to take Sabbath and rest once a week, rest in his presence. So that one's a little tricky. And he does want us to have work to do in his kingdom. And he wants churches to be successful in that work. So there is some overlap. And in our nation, when our nation does well and is, is using values of Jesus' kingdom, sometimes we ought to applaud and cheer and say, well done. We like this. We're all for this. But when it departs, we ought to stand up and say, no, I don't belong to that kingdom. The values and morality of Jesus' kingdom are very, very different. And we speak it out and we don't participate. And we become preoccupied as what does the king want? How does he want us to live? The problem of the kingdom of my nation when I'm focused, my organizing principle is I want my nation to do well. I want my nation to thrive. And it's all about that. That kingdom is going to make us angry because it teaches us who our opponent is. It's a partisan political world. In that kingdom, you're told every day, and I'm told, those people are the problem. Those are the people you ought to be angry with. Those are the people you ought to hate. They're doing this to us. And it does create an angry people focused on their own success and their own comfort. But in Jesus' kingdom, he says, we're not going to do that. I'm not going to teach you who to hate and oppose and be angry with. He says, I'm going to teach you how to love and forgive and go the extra mile. Those values, those moral virtues that Brooks told us about, that we have to have, come when we lose our life and say, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I want to be a part of your kingdom why are we so sad why are we so angry 
because we're carrying the wrong burdens. We're carrying the burden that I must be comfortable or I must be successful or that my country must be this or this or this. And those burdens are weighing us down. They weigh really heavy. And we're missing the great peace that comes by sitting under this great tree in its shade and listening to the birds in the air that Jesus' kingdom offers. And he does offer that. Do you remember what Jesus said? He asked this question. He says, are you tired? Are you worn out? He might as well have said, are you angry and sad? <laughs> he speaks to our American culture. He says, are you angry? Are you sad? Are you lonely? Are you tired? Are you worn out? He says, then come to me. I know how to give you a rest. I know how to give you the right burdens. My yoke is easy, he said, my burden is light. Suddenly our burdens become burdens that we are meant and designed to carry. You were not designed and I was not designed to be angry at people all the time. We were designed to love and to care, to forgive and be grace. And when we wear that in his kingdom, it feels right. It fits. It's a yoke that fits and we wear it well. That's why Jesus says, come to me. Live, live under the shade of my tree. Come to me. Charles Spurgeon was a great preacher in London many years ago. And he found out about the financial distress of a member of his church. So he gathered together some money and he went to her house. He knocked on the door knowing that she was in her apartment. He knocked and he knocked and no one came. Um, he knew she was in there, but she, he called out. Door never opened. The next Sunday, he saw her at church. He said, I was there to give you help. She said, well, when were you there? And he said, I was there Wednesday about noon. She said, oh, yeah, I heard you. But I was afraid that you were the landlord coming to ask for the money that I didn't have. And here he was knocking, saying, I have help. I have what you need. And when Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock, he's saying, oh, I don't want you to be angry. <laughs> I don't want you to be sad. I want you to come in and be with me. I'll show you how to learn how to live and take a real rest. Just open the door. Let me in, he says. I stand at the door and knock. You know, at the beginning of the Bible, there was a great tree. You remember? There was a great tree in the garden. And that, out of that tree came death into the world, chaos, sin, and it ran rampant. And in the middle of that, Daniel and Ezekiel, they had a vision of another great tree. Someday there's going to be a great tree. And that tree also came out of death. It came out of death. Jesus is dying on the cross, on the tree, came this great world tree. That provides shade and rest. And we can live there right now. We can cast our cares on him. Trust him for tomorrow. Trust him for comfort, success for our nation. But also at the end of the Bible, there's a tree. The beginning, in the middle. There's also a tree at the very end. This is from Revelation. Then the angel showed me. Water of life, river, crystal bright. It flowed from the throne of God and the Lamb 
right down the middle of the street, the tree of life was planted on each side of the river, producing 12 kinds of fruit, a ripe fruit each month. The leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. And never again will anything ever be cursed. Someday for eternity, we get to rest under the shade of that tree. But that can begin today. Today. If we're ready to lose our lives and trust him and his kingdom all from a tiny mustard seed. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we're grateful for your story, your parable, but mostly today we're grateful that you died for us so that we could have and find the right burdens to carry, the way we were created to live. And Lord, for those of us here this morning that may be lonely or maybe angry or sad, I pray that you will knock Come and may we have the courage to open the door and to trust you. We don't know what tomorrow holds, Lord, but you do. Help us to see and to lie at peace under the shade of your great tree. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.